Welcome to the RSP cast. I'm Matt Waldman. This is Russ Landy. We are just excited to get a chance to have another conversation about scouting, football, and things that just kind of intersect with that in life. So, Russ, always a pleasure. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Had a great, just our nuclear family, the three of us Thanksgiving. It was 400 different Zoom calls with family and friends all over the country, but uh, just sitting here, had a little veggie lasagna because my daughter is vegetarian, and uh, it was awesome. So life is good, and there was some good football that day. Even though none of the records of the teams were good, they were still enjoyable games. Yeah, I got a chance to watch some of those a little bit later. My wife and I played a lot of cards, talked a lot of trash. She was in the middle of uh, <laughs> she was in the middle of redoing our kitchen, so um, we just ordered Chinese food and barbecue like the day before. And I'm about to go back to being a vegetarian. I have a feeling. So you know, there you go. So kudos to your daughter on that front. Um, but uh, Mind listen, you, she, she's a vegetarian, and yesterday I bought a large rack of ribs. <laughs> next week so you won't get to enjoy that well that's all right then more for you guys right so exactly. you know but hey listen more for you guys listening as well um you know today we're going to get a chance to talk a little bit about a, a variety of things one is just you know coaching and the value of of coaches and the experiences that they get as well as you know, things that we think are important or valuable for people who are trying to enter this industry, either through the NFL or through football in terms of working with organizations um, or in the media, in terms of media scouting as well. And we'll talk about some of the experiences we've had, some of the things we've observed through other of other people who are doing this and younger who are who are who are doing a good job. And and then things that maybe we think that would be a you know, good advice for, for folks who are just getting started. And of course, we'll name some players that we've liked as we've watched, um, you know, as we're getting ready to grind a little bit more tape here and there. So Russ, I mean, it, you know, when it comes to, when it comes to leadership, you know, you suggested this idea, you know, in terms of this topic, I think it's a great one. Love for you to just kind of like kick it off and kind of pose what, what it is that you're, you're thinking about here. Well, you know, I mean, it, it was, a, it was a, frustrating or sad, whatever word you want to use, weak in terms of seeing some of these people that lose their jobs. And, and Coach Patricia and, and Bob Quinn both got fired in Detroit. And There's no doubt in my mind that you, you're not going to find two guys who are going to work harder to try to achieve the success that they had seen in New England and wanted to bring to Detroit. Um, and, and it's brought up one of the things that I've sort of seen over the years, and it's nothing is 100% in any business. But the one thing I've always wondered with Patriots, especially people that have left there, is those that have gone on to be successful, people like Thomas Dimitrov, who had a good, even though he just got let go, I mean, he had a 12, 13-year run there where they won a lot of games, went to the Super Bowl, a lot of playoffs. I mean, they did a lot of things the right way. And although Bill O'Brien got whacked, I mean, he did go to the playoffs four out of five years before this year, which is not easy in the NFL. Not many teams do that. So when I look at the track record, guys that have left New England and gone elsewhere, the big thing I've noticed is the people that have been really successful are ones that didn't just work for the Patriots or for the Browns under Belichick and then the Patriots. A lot of them had different experiences, and it's not to say that the Patriots' way of doing things doesn't work. It's just that if you haven't learned other ways, it's a lot harder to handle when things go sideways. Coach Belichick, to me, is the best coach I've ever seen as someone that's worked in the industry for 20 years, but he didn't just work there. He worked for a number of different organizations and determined what worked for his personality to be the head coach and how he would adjust to things as they went sideways. And I think that's one of the things when I look around the league, 
Are there people like John Robinson and Billy Bean who have no doubt been successful after just working for one organization? No doubt. But I think that's more of the sort of the abnormal side of this. I don't think you're going to have many people in this business who just climb the ranks in their building and become great at what they do in all situations, because I don't think you learn how to deal with adversity. A, when you're always in the same place, but B, I think especially for people in the Patriots building where this was going to be and still could be the 17th straight year of 10 wins in a row. There's not a lot of adversity when you're a scout or a scouting assistant or a director, when you're in the playoffs every year, there's not a lot of panic. There's not a lot of, Hey, we have to rebuild everything because we're so bad. So I think sometimes not going through that and being in the same organization with the same way of doing things year after year can make it harder to go to another place and be successful. I think that's a great point because, you know, even outside of the NFL circles, just in, you know, in, in any type of business world or team situation um, that you're going to be in, oftentimes there's a level of kind of complacency or stasis when things are successful. So you can't, you know, creativity often comes out of conflict or it comes and you need to have, and it it's inspired by that because you're trying to find solutions to problems that you haven't been able to overcome. And if, you know, very rarely do you see organizations say, this was good, but it's not good enough. Let's keep, you know, let's, let's make this better. Now you'll hear people talk that talk, but they're not revamping everything. And, and, and maybe there's areas where they should, but they're not doing it because they're like, things are going well, you know, and when you're, when things are doing well, are going well, you tend to think, well, this is the time where I can relax a little bit. Maybe I can spend a little bit more time at home. Maybe I can, you know, I can have a little bit more balance in my life um, or this has been successful and these aren't things that we think have to change. So why are we going to rock the boat in that regard? And I think that that's where, you know, oftentimes you see in companies where they will hire people. Um, the people who tend to be often quite valuable are people who have come from have worked at a variety of companies um, and have dealt with a variety of different situations where is where one where companies can often suffer is where they start off as like a family business and then they grow gen, you know over a generation or two and everyone starts at the bottom rung you know they start as the 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 um, entry level employee then they work their way up to the entry level supervisor and then they work their way up to the entry level manager and suddenly they're in corporate and they understand how company a does things how the nfl does things whether it's one nfl team or whatever we know how the browns do things or how the lions do things um, and then they adopt that mentality in a point of power where they're thinking, well, we know this is how that we've done it. We've been successful. We've done it this way. And then when they are meeting up with someone who offers something new, it's easy to feel a little threatened by that new thing. Or, and as a result of that, you can come across with that idea of like, well, this is how we are. But as a result too, it's kind of like, you're a little bit inbred. It's, I mean, it's not a great way of saying it, but you're a little bit of it. You're a little inbred, and those inbred ticks can like create certain types of flaws within you know how you approach things. And when you don't bring other ideas out there, that's why companies when they do diversity and inclusion studies, 
And if you have both diversity and inclusion of ideas and, and you have an atmosphere of that, um, you actually wind up with a lot stronger results from the studies that they've done academically because of the fact that people are forcing themselves to honor different points of view and recognize them. And when they do that, they start to discover that there is something of greater value than what they've already got out there. Well, I mean, and I'm sure you've heard it too, but I've always been told that since I was growing up in business and, and then working in footballs, you know a company is probably going to struggle when you hear the executives say, well, this is how we've always done it. As soon as you hear that, it's sort of a red flag to, hey, you're not even willing to consider. And I'm not saying that companies don't have a way of doing things and shouldn't teach their way. That's not, I'm not saying that's your problem. Obviously, successful companies have things they've been very successful at. You have to teach the way you do things. But to then not be willing to hear other ideas is the difference. And perfect example, when I got to the CFL, I went to work for a team that had been to, I think it was eight Grey Cup championship games in the 2000-2010 era. So when I got there in 2013, they were sort of rolling. They had it figured out. And when I would bring up ideas, I kept hearing, well, that's not how we do it. And I kept saying, that's great, but we can't, if you're not moving forward, you're falling behind. In football. So you always have to be trying to get better. And I think one of the things I've noticed when I've dealt with people, both CFL, NFL, primarily on the scouting side, but some on the coaching side is those people that are not always willing to think forward and say, hey, what can we do to improve? How can we improve this process? Those are the ones that struggle. Whereas when I was at the Rams and I was young, for Vermeil, when he was there, he literally came in and said, hey, let, if you have ideas, any ideas you have that you think can make us better and help us get better, that's what we want to do. And one of the things he did, and I know you, you and I have talked about how I have this whole quarterback system, that only came about because Vermeil said, hey, we've evaluated quarterbacks the same way forever. He said, I want you and our quarterback coach to try to figure out if there's another way we can do this. And it's not so much that our way was perfect that we came up with. It was let's look at other factors. Let's try to look at other things that maybe influence a quarterback's success at the next level. To me, that's the sign of someone who's saying, hey, I may be successful, but I want to continue to be successful. And to continue to be successful, you've got to implement new things. Sometimes hire people that are outside of what you would normally do. So they force you to look at the bigger picture instead of looking down the tunnel you've looked at your whole career. Yeah, it's a, such a great point. And it's one of those things that I think what happens and what you're talking about here too is that people tend to conflate values that are timeless with actual like process, which is not. And, mm -hmm. you know, the way we've always done it. Well, the way we've always done it, if you have a moral compass and you're going to say, we're not going to cheat people. We're going to treat people fairly and with respect. We're always going to try to learn something new. We're always going to look at a process and ask questions to question the veracity or the validity of the process to see if there's something new with it. Those are timeless things. But what I just put in there was something that says we're always going to change. You know, So there are some companies that don't do that. But what they do is they conflate the, well, you know, we've always done it this way, thinking that you're on moral high ground or that, you know, and you're thinking, well, just your values are different than how you go about your business. And, and so, you know, it's the same thing. I mean, like 
the world club, you know, the, the RSP, the process that I use with that is rooted in basically a, a consultant company that works with a variety of other companies to, to track and work and develop world-class processes. And the common thing about that was you want to build a process that you're constantly questioning, that you're constantly saying, am I asking this question correctly? And I, and it needs to be a question phrased in a way that's simple enough that I can say yes or no. And if I can't say yes or no to, to answer that question, then I either need to develop a new question um, or an additional set of questions to cover that topic. And then I have to continue to test to that um, each, each year. So if you're teaching yourself to say, how do I keep getting better? Because it's just like people who exercise. It's like once you can pound out you know, 50, 50 push-ups in a row. Well, how can you be more efficient about your time so that you can maximize the development of your, of your physical well-being? Because probably doing, you know, 500 push-ups may not be as, uh, you, you know, if you can get there, I mean, uh, again, Herschel Walker and Bo Jackson may have something to say about that, but, uh, you know, they, they did them different ways. I'm sure they just didn't pound out your normal set of push-ups. They were probably varying, you know, how they, where their hands are, what kind of push-ups they're doing, the different angles that they can get so that they can fully develop their frames because they're not just going, well, We've always done it this way, so let's do it, you know, because now they're spending several hours doing, you know, one thing that's not getting them any better um, in their frame. So it's the same thing, thing with like exercise science as applies to what we see with leadership or business or any type of organizational behavior, which is that, yeah, you've, you've got to switch things up. You've got to find new angles and ways to vary things or else you're not going to grow. Oh, there's no doubt. And I mean... Don't get me wrong. Everybody wants to be part of a winning franchise. I think you can learn a ton um, from watching some of the really successful coaches do it. But at the same time, I'll tell you, that four years I was at the Rams, I was there for Chuck Knox's last year. Wow. And then we got let go. And then for Rich Brooks's two years when he came from Oregon. And we had Steve Ortmeyer was the GM who had been Al Davis's one of his right-hand men for many years. And then after that didn't work for two years, they got rid of him and brought in Dick Vermeil. And Dick Vermeil brought in Charlie Army to head up scouting. And he was a very militaristic guy, had been in the Army, went to, I think, Colorado State or Air Force, and very linear guy. But all of those groups I learned from. And when you're losing, sometimes the willingness to basically throw stuff on the wall because you're, just try you're desperate to find anything that will work, it really opens your eyes to a lot of ideas. And it really teaches you about the importance of certain things. I mean, John Becker was our director of college scouting at the Rams. And we, he and I didn't have a bad or good relationship. It was sort of a non-relationship. We didn't interact a lot. But I got to see how he did his process. And he was very more sort of like you, Matt, in that he almost viewed the, the watching the film and the whole running of a scouting department as an artistic endeavor. When you would hmm. hear him talk about players, it was very artistic and everything. But that also, unfortunately, flowed over into how we were run. Ah, uh, yeah. Everything was very disorganized. and We weren't keeping all the – the files weren't always organized. And things just seemed a little disheveled. And when Charlie Army came in, he talked a lot about it's great to be able to focus on the sort of the abstract and the artistic side when you're watching the film. 
But in order to be successful, we do have to put numbers on grades. We have to put numerical grades on players yeah. so we can separate them. We have to be organized. We can't ever – he goes, you can't afford to miss on players because you didn't know them or knew, know, have their list of where they are. He said, we have to be organized. So you learn a lot from the failures of going through different regimes. So it's not to knock what the Patriots are doing because that would be sort of insanity. There's never been a more successful 20-year run in the history of football. Right. But to expect that you will take that exact methodology and clone that everywhere else and be successful, I think, is unlikely. And I think that's part of the reason you see that when you look at Tennessee and you look at Buffalo, where they do have a GM who learned in one place, firstly, those GMs, <clears throat> although they learned in one place, it's not like they are the be-all, end-all, incomplete and total authority in their buildings. They have head coaches who have been in different places. The Mike Vrabel was in Pittsburgh. Then he was in New England, Pittsburgh in New England as a player. Then he worked for Houston as a coach. Then he became the head coach in Tennessee. So he's seen different things. And, and Sean um, McDermott has been hired and fired a few times as an assistant coach in the league, been a coordinator, learned how that works. So I think they have been able to help the fact that the GM may not have had a varied background and the two of them combining allows them to work together and be more able to look at different paths. And I think that's part of the success. I just think that closed mindedness in all businesses, but especially football can be really tough to be successful because the game is changing so often. Yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. And it's, and it's one of those things that also speaks to one of the problems that the NFL has. Cause I know talking with Dan Hatman in the past, He's like, he brings up a point that I never really thought about for a while, which was how many coaches who get fired or GMs get fired, especially GMs more than anything. How many of them get another job as a GM in the league? Almost unheard of. Yeah, exactly. And you're thinking, but I think about these play you know, about, about, about coaches and I think failure teaches you to teaches you the most valuable lessons. So well, why wouldn't Belichick you be never looking? Never got a second chance, right? <laughs> What's that? You, if Belichick never got that second chance in New England, yeah, exactly. Well, Brady would probably have been cut, yeah, and been a backup or whatever it may have been, and it, the history of football would be completely different. Exactly, you know, and it's just one of those situations where you need to have. It just it boggles my mind that you. It's it's where PR gets in the way and perception gets in the way of like of good thinking because you should be looking at a guy and going well what did you learn from that experience what would you do differently what are and and they'd probably tell you well here's some of the problems that all GMs go through you, you know here's how no I would I've thought about how to address that you know well a friend of mine was a GM got let go. And we, and over the past two or three years, we've become much closer. And he's talked a lot about, hey, I screwed up this, 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 and this. And he goes, I'm hopeful that at some point, maybe I'll get that chance again. He goes, and I know I'll be better. Yeah. Because he said, I will know how to deal with the things that I didn't deal with well the first time. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense because if you think about it, especially in the NFL, where the difference between winning and losing can be so small. That one or two bad decisions, your first year on the job, can almost doom those next two or three years, and then you're screwed. Whereas now you go into it understanding that, you're going to be more apt to take a wider 
perspective on everything of, you know what, we feel comfortable with this, but let's let's bring in a few more guys, even though we're comfortable, because we have to be sure we're right, as opposed to putting all our chips on one decision. And I think it, it's so strange to me. I've always wondered why GMs, very few, get a second chance. Bill Polian's one of the few, and he got better and better and better wherever he went. I mean, if you look at him from Buffalo, where he was the head of scouting, to Carolina, and then to Indianapolis, they got better and better and better. And it's pretty remarkable, but very few guys get that opportunity. Yeah, it's strange. And I'll make two points to kind of, you know, maybe for us to continue this topic a little bit more and take it um, in, a, in, in another direction. One of it is, is, you know, when I think about, I was just listening to someone talk about teachers today, and he was just talking about, you know, good teachers versus bad teachers. And the real point was, maybe there aren't, you know, there are certainly examples of teachers who are just exceptionally great, you know, and can teach anyone. And then there are some teachers who are examples of just being awful and they should never have an opportunity to be educators or in any level. But most of them are somewhere in between. And really the, the issue is, is learning as a student, as you get older, to understand that some teachers may not be good teachers for you. How you perceive that teacher, how you work with them, personality quirks. Maybe you can't stand the fact that this guy wears sandals in 30 degree weather and, you know, has long hair. Maybe you can't stand the fact that he looks like your militaristic dad and that you, you know, who's who's too closed off in the way that he thinks about things. And maybe that gets in the way. And the issue then is it's you. It's not the teacher. It's you. Because maybe the rest of the class loves that teacher. Maybe they're continuing to learn, but you just can't seem to learn because you can't get past whatever distractions there are or their methods of teaching that may not be helpful to you that you need. So it's the same thing in a work standpoint that it's like who you're working with and how you're working with them. Oftentimes that can be an issue. And so you may see someone and go, I have to work with this coach and I don't like working with this coach. Um, but I can, but you have to look at it as an opportunity to go, what is this? You can study them in an abstract way and say, what can I gain from them? Just as you've described here is like, what, what can I gain from them? Well, this guy takes it in a very abstract kind of artistic sort of way. But the downside is that he applied that same type of mentality to a day-to-day management that can't work, you know? And then, you know, and then on another front, I think about mistakes and, and I think about just, you know, quarterbacks. And we talk about Tua and how he got benched. And and Mark Schofield and I, on a, on a recent show we did, we looked at that as a, as a great positive for him because the Dolphins pretty much said early in, before the season started, we're going to start Tua at some point, likely within a couple of months of the season. They have a winning record. They, they stayed with it and they started him, even though Fitzpatrick was playing well enough. And then... You know, they felt like he was getting in a little bit of over his head against the Broncos and that if he continued playing, that there'd be some things that would be harder for him to overcome. So they benched him and then they started Fitzpatrick the next week. And it's like people may be worried about that from a perception standpoint in the NFL and how that usually you get benched nowadays and it seems like your career's over as a starter. But it's most likely this was Miami having a plan on how to approach this guy. And so there's something about he's going to get a chance to learn lessons just the way the same the way that Drew Brees talked about learning them with Marty Schottenheimer and how Schottenheimer would bench him and say, look, you're still my guy. You just were in over your head. If we're close, we're going to put you back in the game. 
So then I think about coaches and I think about someone like Raheem Morris, who's with Atlanta, who a player said to me way years ago when Morris was having his 10 and six season, or maybe it was the season after that they had beaten new Orleans and they were, they, they beat new Orleans on the road, I think. And they were excited about it. And the player told me after he wound up with another team that he really loved the, the way the organization approached things. And he played for about four or five NFL organizations and a couple of CFL organizations. And he told me in hindsight, he said, I couldn't wait to get out of Tampa Bay with Raheem Morris because he was partying with players. And that he was, you know, he wasn't approaching this in a way that he needed to. And Morris's career, unfortunately, after turning them around very quickly, um, having a huge turnaround going 10 and 6 after a losing season the year before, just kind of flamed out. And now he's with Atlanta. They're 4 and 2. I have to watch Atlanta every week. And. And I've enjoyed it because their defense, suddenly their athletes who are run and hit guys are like stopping the run. They're getting downhill. They're taking good angles. They're when they're on top, they're putting more pressure on the on the opponent. And they're able to you know, the the offense has always been the good thing. Now it's like the defense is like starting to become a little bit more of an equal partner, or at least enough that they're not a liability, and they shouldn't be a liability. I've watched these players for years, and I'm going these guys can cover the field, Keanu Neal and and Deion Jones, and then. But I, the joke for me has always been just get these get a get the opponent in space because those guys can't take a good angle to save their lives, and they miss tackles left and right. And now I'm watching them, and there's like three or four guys that I'm who who are playing in the, those areas in the safety and linebacker areas where I'm going. Those guys aren't missing tackles anymore. Those guys are in the spots they need to be, and so you look at Morris, and I think. It'd be nice to see him get another chance, um, and maybe he's learned his lesson. But as you've mentioned, you know, I mean, you know, there there's not a strong list of of players who've been good or coaches who who have succeeded after being interim coaches. True. Now, I will say Morris is a really interesting case because if you look at guys that got head coaching jobs in the NFL in their early 30s, there aren't many. So, so there has to be a natural charisma leadership to them, which is so vital to being a head coach in the NFL. Because I really believe the bulk of success of the great coaches is the ability to motivate all the players in different ways. Because a lot of coaches have only one way they can motivate, and therefore they fail. Whereas guys like Belichick and Parcells and Mike Tomlin – can relate to all their players in the different ways. And with Morris, obviously there's some natural charisma. So has he learned from that first experience to where he can be successful? Now, history, as I said, I'm always leery of interim coaches because, and I think we, when we talked prior to the show starting, they would, if I remember correctly, it was Marty Schottenheimer and Don Coriel. And Marv Levy. And Marv Levy, the only yeah. three that we could find that really were successful. And there are either, even some Hall of Fame coaches like Sid Gilman, who became yeah. an interim and didn't do well, got fired and went somewhere else and became the legendary Sid Gilman. And most recently um, we had the Freddie kitchens took over as the head coach in Cleveland. That didn't work out. I think part of the problem is when a head coach gets fired, the, the players know they're not winning that. Year. So maybe they're not overly worried about impressing that head coach because this coach they know is going to be gone. And they think, well, I'm probably going to be somewhere else. I have to put the best film out there. So I have to compete every single snap like it's my last day on earth if I want to stay employed in football. 
So sometimes you get a bump. Players play at a higher level. Um, the one thing I would say is that's been a very stable franchise. A lot of the coaches, a lot of the scouting, a lot of the executive, all of them have been there a while. If Morris has been able to make this type of energetic change, there may be something positive to his ability to succeed. But I will say I'm always leery of interim coaches just because, like I said, when everybody gets fired, the team sort of takes a deep breath because they know it can't get any worse. Yeah. So they don't have to worry, oh, if I make a mistake. Well, we all know football players play a lot better when they're not worried about making mistakes, when they're just going full bore. As my old boss said, He's never met a player who's, who helped the team when he fought on the field. Well, that's what you want. You want guys who aren't even thinking. They're just out yeah. there playing football. And sometimes that happens when the head coach gets fired because you know it can't get any worse. Yeah. Um, all that being said, I'm hoping I'm wrong. I'm hoping Morris wins out the rest of the year. Turns out to be a great hire because the people I know, even the people that were in Tampa that said that whole thing went south, nobody has anything bad to say about him as a person. Yeah. You won't find anybody that says Morris isn't a good guy isn't a loyal guy. So I'm hoping it works. I just know the history of interim coaches. I would be absolutely petrified to hand the ball of my franchise and say, I'm giving it to the guy who went I don't know, seven and four over the final part of the season. I'd be very leery of that. Yeah. And that's, and that's understandable. It's interesting. I will end this on a note about organizations and how they approach things with a story about Arthur blank. Cause I saw Arthur blank, um, when I was working at the University of Georgia and he gave a um, he gave what I would joke around and say is one of these like um, overly like probably overpaid leadership talks, you know, that they, that that oftentimes you'll see at universities where the guys just hired to tell war stories. You know, that's that, that's what they want to hear is is like practical war stories. And there's some value to that, but it's like it's a little over the top. But I found this story interesting as a as someone who's you know, in football to a, to a degree that I am. And he talked about taking over the Atlanta Falcons from his days at Home Depot and how he went to um, Furman where they used to have their, their, their training camp, first training camp. And he goes to Furman and the president of the, I think it was the president of Furman was there and was giving um, Blank the tour that summer. And, you know, just kind of showing them around and showing them this is where you're going to stay. And it's this like nice little cottage, like, you know, home that's like a, you know, might as well be like, you know, it, it, it's plush accommodations on campus. Yeah. So probably one of those old, you know, pre-Civil War antebellum looking building type of deals, you know. And, and Art the Blank is like, listen, um, I, I actually wasn't planning on staying here. I want to stay with the players. And the president's like, oh, no, you're not going to want to stay there. You're going to want to stay with us. These are great accommodations. You're... And he's like, well, I actually, I really want to get down and see what the players' accommodations are. Um, I'm interested in that. And the, the president kind of seemed a little um, put off by that, maybe a little worried. <laughs> so they go down there, and he looks around, and he's like, they're dorm rooms. I expected them to be dorm rooms. Some of the ACs work. Some some of them don't, like most dorm rooms do. Um, they're, you know, there's old equipment. He said, but what I noticed a lot is that with these linemen who, you know, who are in these dorms, he goes, I noticed one that they had towels that were about the size of dish towels that were, that they're supposed to use to get out of the shower with. And so that made no sense. And then I'm looking and most of their mattresses were on the floor. They weren't even on the bed because 
the bed frames were too small for them. And I'm sitting there thinking, why would I continue? He's like, and so he's asking these questions to people like, why are these guys in these situations? Why do we have these types of accommodations for them? These are, they're our commodity and we need to be able to like make sure that they're in their best, you know, ability to perform. He's like, why? Well, we've always had it like this because the Smith family who owned this um, organization before them, you know, just kind of did things the same way and didn't really continue to grow as players grew. You know, I mean, when, you know, when people my age were or people my height were offensive linemen and defensive tackles, I understand. But, you know, players grew since then and they didn't grow with it, as we see. And the organization was kind of pretty much left behind. And so. Arthur Blank was like, yeah, after that first summer, we were like, we're moving this back to Swanee and we're we're going to make sure that players have accommodations that they can perform well, um, you know, when it's time to do that. And I always thought that's a guy who understands, you know, to ask questions and not just be like, well, I'm in charge, so I'm going to get the perks of being in charge. Let me find out what's going on and see what's happening and not have people tell me what that is, you know, and use some common sense, so... No, it's a great example. I mean, too many times in the NFL, you could literally ask the owners who some of the people that head up the different departments are, and they wouldn't even know. Yeah. Whereas I think Arthur Blank would not only know the name of every head of department, I would bet he would know the name of all the people that work in the equipment room, all the trainer, all the trainers, all the janitors in the building. I would bet you knows every person's name that's at least been there for a year. Yeah. And and that's because he started his career in a in a in a little Buford Highway um, hardware store that was that I knew what that place was because I lived not far from there in Atlanta, and that was his shop with Bernie Marcus and his. I knew people who worked at Home Depot, and they told me that like um, cashiers were making you know forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars at some point under under him that, that they were asking um, Bernie Marcus and to, and Arthur Blank to basically walk them down the aisle and give them away at weddings. Um, employees who worked with them, they grew that business. They grew it to a point that it became a powerhouse. And certainly, you know, cashiers aren't making that kind of money nowadays. Um, but you could tell the level of success that they were able to obtain and that they grew it from the roots, you know, from, you know, the ground roots, you know, working forward. And that's the type of thing that when you've had that experience, you know, in a different industry, you can cross that crosses over to what you see in the NFL. There is no question. Yeah. There's no doubt. So, so let's talk about, you know, this industry and, and, you know, you, you mentioned that there's folks that you're observing that you see positive things in terms of how people are doing in terms of um, how they're approaching their careers and wanting to be a scout um, whether it's on the NFL side or the media side. So I'd love for you to just kind of share some of the thoughts you've had about what you're seeing and also what you think is important in the, in, you know, to, to be able to develop in this area. Well, you know, I, th- I think one of the things that's sort of disappointing um, when, even though I work for a team now and I've worked for teams most of my career is it's become, it's such a combative industry in the media side of it um on twitter on facebook wherever it may be the draft universe the media draft whatever you want to call it it's all about making sure you prove yourself right and 
prove everybody else wrong. Yeah. Um, and one of my original bosses, and actually my original boss in the NFL, was a guy named Jack Faulkner, who pretty much was there when they invented water back <laughs> three million years ago. Um, I mean, the stories he had were legendary, but one of the things he always said is, he said, you can always tell who the good scouts are, because he said, when you ask him about memorable re player reports and players they evaluated, he goes, almost to a man, they, they'll tell you about the guys they missed on. Yeah. He said, the really good scouts have the confidence that they don't care. They'll tell you about the complete whiffs they have because they know they're good. They're not worried about it. And the thing I find so interesting is so many young guys that, that want to get into this business, when I sit down and talk with them, whether it's through the class I teach or whether it's at the combine or the just emails and phone calls I get from young guys wanting to get into business, they all want to tell me about the players they've been successful evaluating. And I'll always say, okay, well, tell me about some of the guys you missed them. And not only will they, they may mention a player's name, but they have 14 different excuses for how they couldn't evaluate him properly or he was misused at the NFL level or whatever it may be, as opposed to just saying, and trust me, nobody likes saying it, but I can tell you 100%, I evaluated Ryan Nassau and I gave him a first round grade and I thought he was going to be a high end NFL starter. And he never even got a sniff as a start. He was right. never even good enough to get that role. So you know what? I've had people tell me, well, you weren't wrong. He never proved he couldn't be a starter. I was like, no, the fact that he never even got an opportunity as a starter right. tells you I was wrong. I said, right. that is what it is. And I said, to me, that's one of the things that's so impressive. There are certain guys who I follow either on Twitter or I followed in my career or some of them that worked for me and went on to do other things that have always been impressed because they'll say, yep, I missed on this guy. I graded him. I liked him. One of the guys that used to work for me that I think you know, Josh Liskowitz, sure. worked for me for six years. Josh was so sure Josh Freeman was going to be a star in the NFL. He loved him. He gave him a gigantic rate. And in the end, he didn't make it. After that great rookie year when everybody thought he was about to light the world on fire, he sort of fell off the planet. But I always gave Josh credit because he wasn't somebody who came out with every reason. He's like, yeah, he goes, I don't know what it was. But he goes, clearly I missed on that guy. And at least he was willing to admit he missed. A lot of guys aren't. And I think that's one of the problems with young guys. And that's why when a lot of young guys always ask me, can you help me? Can you make a call? There are very few that I'll help because if I don't feel confident that you will represent not only me, but that you're going to be willing to admit your mistakes, I don't know how successful you'll be in this business. And therefore, I can't recommend you. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And let's discuss that a little bit more because I think there are a variety of things. We've had conversations before about players and saying, well, listen, there has to be some amount of time that should pass before you say that. I mean, like I see people on the other end who after a year that the player didn't play or he got cut by a team where maybe he wasn't a good fit with that team, that they're like, well, I missed on that player. And I'm like, well, maybe you should be a little more patient with that. Yeah. Like I'm a, I'm a believer, give it two to three years. For you, Nassib has been several years ago. It's an opportunity you can say, yeah. Like for me, I can look and say very easily, after the first couple of years, I didn't like Demarius Thomas. And after the first couple of years, I thought he's kind of a one-dimensional player. I don't particularly like him that much. I feel pretty good about my evaluation. Um, but he continued to develop. He became a better and better route runner. He became a top route runner. 
And then as a dynamic player, I mean, it's very easily that I missed on his ability to grow, like without a shadow of a doubt, you know, or you look at someone like, and then there's people that are obviously look at someone like Blaine Gabbert and I look at him and I really liked him. And I based it on, I based it on earlier tape where I saw him do things in the pocket that I felt confident about. And I, and I tried to root that the issues that I saw after his sophomore year in the pocket well, that was circumstantial. It was what I really saw him be able to do earlier when he didn't know better <laughs> was well, probably he... the, the the better course of action. And 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 I saw that that didn't work, you know. But the the point being is that you, I think taking some time is the first thing I want to bring up is that you, there's got to be a period of time where you got to say to people and go, like I say to people, people ask me about Hakeem Butler and Dante Pettis. And I'm like, because I had them rated very highly. I rated until last year, Hakeem Butler was my highest rated wide receiver ever. Um, and he and he has and you described him perfectly. He hasn't even gotten a shot. And now they want to use him as a tight end in Philly. And people ask me, well, did you miss on him? And I'll say, it's looking that way for sure. Yeah, now, but it's I, not there yet. It's not there yet because I want to see at least a, see if he gets a shot somewhere else because it's possible that it wasn't a good fit for him because they drafted Andy Isabella in Arizona and Isabella really hasn't amounted to much either. And I didn't like Isabella for certain reasons where he didn't seem like he'd be a great fit. So there's that. But then the other thing is, all right, so the, the thing that's hard for, I think, these young people to realize, and I can understand it, it doesn't mean that it's a valid, it doesn't mean that they should let it get in the way of them being better. But I think you look at our social media environment and the media environment and the media environment and also NFL environment a little bit bleeds down to that too. The way the NFL reacts to GMs get fired and they don't get another chance. Quarterbacks get benched and they don't get another chance. So we've already created this environment that if you screw up and it's a big screw up that you're never going to overcome it. So I think that these people see that and they're covering that and then when it gets to the point where it's like, oh, they screwed up individually on something, they they feel like that they can't acknowledge that because if they do, they're now being, you know, they're never going to get another chance. And it's like, and there's, a, and I think that people have so much anxiety over seeing so much in social media and everything's thrown at them and they can see all this negative piling on that happens. And we have this mentality as Mark Schofield would say, is that we want to dunk that, that social media is about dunking on other people. It's either about showing off or waiting for that person to screw up and dunking on them and saying that they're an idiot, you know, and, and everyone knows that inside. And I think as a result of that, it becomes counterproductive and you have to learn to say, yep, I did that. Cause like, I find that, You know, in this business, because I have to sell books, I get on Twitter and I'm like, here's my Nick Chubb evaluation. Here's my, you know, Justin Jefferson evaluation. Here's what I said about Patrick Mahomes. And I, and I bring that up. And so invariably there'll be people who they see that because I'm selling that and they'll go, what about Hakeem Butler or Hakeem Bustler, as they say, which I think is pretty clever. And like, they'll say those types of things and I'll go, yeah, I missed him, you know? And then I just... And, you know, let's move yep. on. You know, I've missed him. Exactly. I've got, I've missed on this, you know, on Thomas. I've missed on Gabbert. But there's a point where you have to understand how to approach that. And part of that approaching is, like you said, 
admit it and just move on because nobody's perfect. No one's ever going to bat a thousand and no. and or even remotely close to that. But at the same time, don't hide it, you know? No. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a great example. When we were, before I joined the Alouettes, I had my scouting company. We were in the process of pitching to some media outlets about us taking over their draft coverage. One of the ideas that they loved was we wanted to do a page on the website where it would list, say, our 20 best evaluations of players that didn't go in the first round that went on to be all pros or 10-year starters or whatever. And they lo- that was their idea. And we said, hey, that's great. We love it. But we'd also like to have a separate page that's our misses. Okay, and we'd like to have 10 yeah. players where we're going to post the report and we're going to give a write-up as to why we think we screwed this up. And they were like, are you sure? And I'm like, 100% because it gives credibility. Yes. Because you're admitting, hey, I missed on a player. And A, if you don't miss on guys, you're not going to get better because you're going to learn. <laughs> you miss. I mean, Blaine Gabbert, you mentioned a great one. I remember watching him and I was really excited. I gave him a first round grade. After he got in and didn't make it, a lot of scouts told me, yeah, I wasn't a big fan. I was really concerned about his pocket presence. And I read my report, and I didn't have any issues with that. So I said, you know, I'm going to go watch the film again. Yeah. And I went back, and I watched it, and I was like, gosh, either I completely missed it, or, and this is something I think we talked about a year ago when we were talking about is that first game or two you grade, that sort of sets the mark. Because yeah. either you're grading from up high, yeah. and you have to dink him to get him to come down the, the planet, or he's terrible and no matter what he does after those first two games, yeah. you can't pull him up to like him. And when and you, Gabbert, you become, I became blind to the mistakes in the pocket and the rushing the play and the ducking down whenever there was pressure coming. But it was a good lesson to learn that with a quarterback, you have to pay so much attention to every time there's pressure in the pocket because if you don't, you can start to believe yeah. the flashes and not the everyday plays. Yeah. Didn't and when you go back and watch that tape after the fact, and you you can just feel like the gut punch, you know, oh, where you're just ooh. like, wow, how did I miss that? Like, how do I, you know, I I did that with Gabbert. I remember going back and watching and just going, wow, that's just yeah. like I, I'm just just the bottom fell out of my guts when I watched when when I watched that. But it's just one of those things that yeah, I mean, and the same thing can happen with tough decisions where. I didn't like Darren McFadden. Now, he was good as a gap runner. If you yeah, could keep no him problem. in gap-style plays, he was very good. He needed a map and directions on zone. Exactly. You know, even with the Cowboys, they were so good that you could literally see him kind of look around as he's making his cutback. Like, am I sure this is where I want to go? Exactly. You know, <laughs> and that's that was a rare exception. But, you know, I remember players like that, and you – and oftentimes what happens is it's very easy for you to see what the media coverage is about. And then um, people are like, oh, he's a dominant, powerful runner. Look at what he does. And you have to be very good at isolating things and saying, you know, especially from a media scout environment, this is what I think would be important is isolating things enough to go. I don't care whether Lance Zerline said this. I don't care whether Russ Landy said that. I don't care whether or not, you know, Gil Brandt says this. I'm looking at this, and what I see specifically is that this guy has absolute crappy pad level, 
and that he can run 15 yards in a straight line and lower his pads into a safety who's standing still and he falls backwards when he hits the safety. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and I have to stick with that no matter what, you know, because that's the facts. Like whatever they're seeing, I don't know what they're seeing. I don't know why they're going about it the way they do, but I know this is what I see. And until I see something otherwise, fine. And I think that's another part of it is that you, you have to stay, you have to have some level of insulation and isolation in order for your, you to continue to grow so that you can say, here's where things are. Here's what I thought things were supposed to be like. Here's how it turned out. How do I, how do I address that? I mean, I really believe if you're a person that says, Hey, I want to be involved in scouting the NFL draft in the media, eventually for a team, but the reality is it's very hard to get started unless you're working for a college in that respect. If you really want to evaluate draft prospects and get better at it and be good at it in terms of be different than the crowd, I'm a big believer, and I tell this to people all the time, just grade every senior starter at the Power Five conferences. Don't worry about where they're ranked. Don't worry about it. Grade the senior starters at the Power Five conference. And then you rank them yourself. Don't look at, and don't, if you want to be on Twitter, which I think is Twitter or Snapchat, it's important in terms of if you want to put your stuff out there and get publicity, but don't follow anybody who does the same thing as you because you don't want to see their opinion. That's right. You need to grade them based on your own. And if you grade all the starters at all the power schools, you're going to see awful and you're going to see great. And then you'll put your own board together. And over time, whether it takes a year or two or three, you'll start to get comfortable enough to then say, okay, I've watched enough of these terrible players. I can cross them off quick. And you can slowly start to build it where you, you get to look at all the players. But I think when you start to let out, and everybody does it, no matter how much we try, outside influence affects your ability to say, this guy's terrible, this guy's great. It's very tough. I had a discussion today. Someone's asking me about the quarterbacks. They were texting me about, you've done the quarterbacks and everything. And I told him, I said, you know, so far I've done all of them, but Justin Fields of the top guys. And so far I've given Trevor Lawrence first round grade. That's it. There is no other first round quarterback to me. There's some other really interesting guys with some really interesting skill sets, but I'm not falling into the, there's five or four guys that could go in the top 10. It's like that they, they're well, may well be. But in my eyes, there's one right now that deserves to be that guy. Yeah. So, you have to be willing to separate and try to knock all that stuff out. Just grade the film. Yeah. The more you focus on the film, and that's the other thing, watch the film. Whether it's film or whether it's TV stuff, you can do a good job with either one. If you are thorough and you take your time, you can get a really good feel for most players, even off TV film, if you take your time. Yeah. And I can promise you, and I'm sure Matt can, would say agree with this, <laughs> when I hear people interviewed on the radio – when they start talking about players, I can instantly tell if they've taken the time to watch, whether it's TV film or coaches film, whether they've watched any film at all or whether they're just spouting off from sitting back on a Saturday night and watching Missouri play Kansas and telling me about the Missouri running back. Because when you watch the film, whether it's coaches or TV film, you understand the player. You learn about the nuanced things he does well and he does poorly, and that comes out when you talk about a player. When you haven't watched, I can tell instantly. Yeah. Even the big famous draft people, 
when they talk about a guy, I can tell if it's a guy that their people told them about or that they actually sat and watched film on because there is a difference in how they describe the skills they saw and what they expect from that play. And there is no way to BS that. There, no, in, there, no because because you could sit there and say you could sit there and say Nick Chubb, you know, he bench presses more than Derrick Henry did and you know, he came from this elite you know, he was an elite program who showed up at the Nike camps and and he was able to post these types of figures and you know, when you watch him and the way that he tore up, you know, this team for the X amount of yards and the way that he can pull away from defenders all that's BS. Like, anyone can watch that. If you sit there and tell me Nick Chubb, the way that he can drop his hips and open his toe to the sideline and then not only be able to, like, move away from a defender, but he set up that defender pre-snap in terms of knowing that when the line shifts over in this direction, that he's going to ignore the gap play the way it's going to run and he's going to do the rare cutback and know that he's just playing to beat the cornerback. Like, he's so endgame oriented that he already knows pre-snap that I can beat this cornerback all the way on the left flat, and there's like 10 guys at the line of scrimmage, and he's worried about the cornerback because he knows he's going to deal with everybody else. And here's how he moves to do that. You don't know that. No one knows that until you watch it, you know? And and, And it's the little things. It's the little things that you pick up when you watch film. And that's the biggest thing I would stress to people who want to get in this business, where they want to work for a team. And trust me, there's even guys in colleges and NFL teams that are young guys trying to do it. And you can tell they don't watch the film. Yeah. And I'm telling you, can see, I mean, I remember, and I don't know your thoughts on when he came out, but I remember watching Melvin Gordon. I remember watching this guy at Wisconsin and, and given they never threw him the ball. So it was hard to judge his hands. But I remember watching him saying, wow, this kid's athletic. He does so many neat things, but I don't know if he has a clue where he's going because he's constantly hitting his lineman's hips. He's running up into them and then realizing and having to readjust. But you would listen to different draft people and different game analysis when you listen. You never heard someone say, this guy doesn't find the hole. He's not very instinctive. Yet when you watch him in the NFL, and I'm not trying to say he's a bad NFL player. I'm just saying there are certain things that are evident, which is, he is very much a linear. When the hole is there and he sees it, he's rare. He can put a foot in and just explode through it. But he doesn't have that Nick Chubb, Kareem Hunt sort of feel for where the hole's going to open and starting to make the cut before it does because he sees the way it's going to. That's not who Gordon is. Yeah. And you can tell when you listen to people, and that's why it's so important. Watch the film. Yeah. Don't just sit back on a Saturday, watch Michigan-Ohio State, and tell me how well – how great Fields is going to be because you saw him make 16 throws that matter in one game while you're sitting on the couch. Tell me what Fields is going to be if you watch six games of in-depth rewind, fast-forward, rewind, fast-forward to get a feel for everything he does. That's how I know you are dedicated and also how I know you love this business. Yeah. Because being a scout isn't glamorous. There's a lot of boring time watching bad football players. And if you're not willing to watch bad football players, you won't be able to identify the good ones. Yeah. If you're if you're on Twitter complaining about bad games, that this is a bad game, I don't even want to watch it. Da 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 I'm just like, you're not you're not real. I'm sorry. No. And there's a lot of guys I like who might be listening to this right now who I like you, I like how you write, I like a lot of things that you do. 
but you're not being for real. Cause like, dude, seriously, if you're like, if you're like, this is a boring game, this game's boring and you can't find an angle of how you like this, then you're, you're probably a good NFL writer. You're probably a good beat writer. You're probably, you know, you can analyze certain things well, but you're definitely not from a scout's mindset because a scout's no, mindset looks right. at this and goes, there's always something interesting oh, about every game. No doubt. There's yeah. always some, because whether it's the coaching style, like to me, the biggest thing I want to find out now, and I'm so busy, I haven't had the time. I want to watch Arizona Cardinals offense, five or six games, and try to get a feel for this offense. Because as a viewer, when I watch them, I've only seen two games since Kingsbury took over. It seems like a very rudimentary offense. Right. It seems almost yeah. too easy for defenses to figure this out. But. <laughs> so, so is it just that Kyler Murray is so dynamic, which makes sense because he is. His film in college showed he was yeah. that. Is he just so dynamic that he's doing things to allow this offense, which seems pedestrian, to survive, and that next year we could see the bottom fall out? Right. Because teams will do what they've done to Baltimore, which is. You're the only person on this offense. We're yeah. not going to let beat us, which is what they've done to Baltimore because Lamar's so great. They said, you're the only guy we care about. Right. We will let the other guys run for 150 yards each. We don't care. Yeah. We're stopping you. And if they do that to Kyler, I look and think, how's that offense going to be? So that, to me, as a scout, that's one of the things I want to learn about. I want to get the time to go and look at things like that. So if you can't find that in every game you're watching, something interesting to watch, you're in the wrong business. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I think that as part of it is you've got to find as a media scout, I would argue that you have to you have to balance what's what you're doing to promote with how to be someone that people can rely on you. Cuz people I think that people look at my book and it's like we know where his weaknesses are, we know where his strengths are, you know? And I think that you know, I'm going to tend to, there are going to be some guys that I may tend to like more than what my audience will like. You know, I'll be praising a Peyton Barber type of running back because... Well, I still can't figure out why he's not a starter. Right. <laughs> but I'll be I'll be praising a guy like him and, and note certain things where I where I'm more suspect of an Anthony McFarlane type of player where who's a who, much faster high-end athlete who basically, you know, needs a compass to tell him where the hole is, you, you know, and how to use his feet and do all those types of things. So I'm, you know, but people understand that about me. Now I'm going to give them the highs and lows about each guy so that you know that you're self-scouting and saying, listen, I come from the Frank Gore school of running back admirers. So, you know, Frank Gore's <laughs> still playing and he'll be playing with his walker probably and still making exactly, better decisions right? than Anthony McFarlane. But yes, you know, I understand why teams want hope that McFarlane can learn enough that if he learns a third of what Frank Gore knows, he can be a darn good running back in the league. But no doubt. you've got to kind of learn how to balance those types of things out um, so that when you're online. And then I think... There is that, how do you get attention without being just a provocateur? Yeah. And if you're going to be a provocateur, understand that people are going to hate you and love you. Or they're going to love to hate you. Um, yeah. And what are you trying to do? Are you, yeah. <laughs> are, you trying to get, are you trying to get attention or are you trying to grow a business? 
And and what is your business about? Do you want people to rely on you for information? If you want them to rely on you for information, then there's a line that you have to stop at when it comes to being provocative. Like you can say what's on your mind, but there's a point where you got to go, you know what? I'm not just going to do this for clicks because Mm -hmm. there's, you know, maybe there's 10 or 15 different instances every day where I look and I want to say, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. And, but at the end of the day, I'm going to realize and going, well, you know, half of those, I might turn that finger right back around and go, I was the idiot, you know, for thinking what they disagreed with. And while that may have gotten me a hundred click, a hundred likes or lots of retweets and people enjoy that at the end of the day, you know, I'd rather people know me as the guy who loves football and studies the game and is about delivering insights about things than being a clown, you know? And now if you want it now, if I wanted to be a clown, I'd try to be the best clown I could be, but that's, but you don't want to unintentionally be one. And I think no, that that's and, and I'll give you a line just it has not so much to do with social media, but this is because you say you want to be known as the as a football guy. Yeah. So I'll give you a perfect example. When I started working for the Alouettes, I was also doing media and I still do some, not as much. So when I would contact NFL teams to go to their training camps, some of them were like, wait a second, don't you do media? Da-da. So one of the guys I contacted at a team, he said, let me go get the GM to sign off because you are in media and we don't usually allow those guys to come in our building, watch film, talk to the coaches. Da-da. And he came back. He said, yeah, I checked with our GM. He said, you're fine. He said, he basically said, you're just an old school football guy who's doing some media, but you're not going to burn any bridges and you'll be good because you're a football guy. I yeah. Said, yeah. That's pretty much what it is. Yeah. I said, I want to watch film. And if I can find some players at that time for the Alouettes, now for the Stampeders, I just want to find players. I'm not going to divulge the secrets yeah. that you guys are nice enough to give me when I'm visiting. I just want to watch film. Just let yeah. me watch film. And that's the difference about, you know, being a media scout and being media. Because, you, you know, if you want to be, I've been a features writer. I don't want to be a features writer for football. I don't want, uh, they're boring stories to me, to be honest with you. Most I mean, of them, most of them are boring, but it's, it's very formulaic and, I'm not all that interested in famous people. I'm not all that interested in, you know, hobnobbing with other, with folks and doing all that and, and all what those different stories are, finding out what the new and latest greatest story is and, and how much attention that I can get early on to break that story first. No, what I really would rather do is just learn truths that I can apply to how that helps people evaluate the game better or have a better perspective about what you do. So you got to know who you are and what that's going to be, you know, what you want to put out there. And if you're going to be a scout, you're not a reporter. You know, you're, if you want to be a, if you want to be a draft reporter, that's a different story, but that doesn't mean you're a scout. Now they may intertwine to an extent and certain companies will ask you to do that. So you've got a, there's some show business and then there's some, there's some media stuff and then there's some scouting along with that. But you have to understand the balance of all that and what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. And if you don't want to, you know, it's like musicians, man. It's like I heard, you know, I remember Branford Marcel's talking about playing with Sting and he said, what's the difference between being like a jazz musician and a pop musician? 
And he said, well, the top, you know, jazz musicians like playing a novel. When you play a solo, you establish a theme, you repeat it. You have lots of different elements that you're feeding in there and a lot of different subtleties. And then when you're playing a pop solo with Sting, it's like burn, baby, burn, because you only got 30 seconds and you've got to like get it all out there and, and cover the points and get people excited. And there's a craft to that, he said. But then the rest of the time, I've spent all this time dancing and stuff. And he's like... <laughs> And he's like, so you got to know that, like, if you're going to do pop media, you're going to be dancing. You got you got 30 seconds. You got to put your stuff out there. That's the most enticing. And then you got to dance and wear the costume and everything. He goes, now, if you're going to do something like, you know, the equivalent of playing in a jazz club, you know, well, that's different because there there's not 30,000 people in, or 90,000 people in an auditorium listening to you most of the time. Most of the time, there's like 30 and they're diehards yeah. <laughs> and they they know everything. And so you, you've you got to really, you know, they're going to understand the subtlety and nuance of what you're doing. Uh, and it's a different scenario. And you're probably going to make about 50 bucks um, after the whole <laughs> thing's over. Um, but whatever, you know, you're doing it for the love of what it is. It doesn't mean that you don't love it doing the, the high end stuff, but it's a different sphere. And you have to understand that heading into heading into this what is it that you want to do and how long are you willing to work at it to get there because also knowing what that road is like it's not a magic road it's a rough road that is for sure i mean think about it in all of north america there are a thousand people that work in scouting (laughs) the amazing thing when you think about it is there are actually more people playing professional football than scouting Yes. There's a better statistical chance of playing than scouting. Now, obviously, you don't need the physical tools, so you have a better chance because anybody can be a scout. But the odds are very low. So to expect it to happen overnight and even to expect it to definitely happen is not smart. No, no, absolutely not. You have to love this. And and it's, uh, I mean, I think, Russ, I mean, I think about when I decided I wanted to do this and I, and I, and I started, you know, I was I started while I was still an operations director and I had created the database I was going to use and the methodology that I was going to use to grow from. And, you know, I was just all excited that I had like graded Mike Bell of running back out of Arizona as like my fifth or sixth ranked guy. And he didn't get drafted. And I thought I'm an idiot. And then he ended up starting for the Broncos. And I thought, OK, maybe this will be OK. So I was still <laughs> excited about it and still, you know, naive about a lot of different things. And I remember telling one of my coworkers, you know, about what I was doing and that I hoped that I could continue doing it. And I could just see the look on their face because they're looking at me. I'm like 35 years old, you know, 34, 35 when I'm looking, doing this. And they're looking at me like, I feel so sorry for you. Like you've completely lost your mind. Like you, I know that they didn't say it, but I could see it on their face. I could just tell they're just like, what happened? Yeah. What happened? To you that you're like wanting to go do this like this isn't safe this makes no sense nobody does this you know and i remember you know and i had a i had a gig you know i turned down roto world a couple of times to do work for them and that was when like um greg rosenthal was going to be my immediate oh, yeah. boss and before greg wound up with nfl.com and they they offered to hire me once and it was going to be i was going to be working alongside evan silva and oh, and cool. so and and I remember like just thinking, well, can I do my own scouting guide? You know, I remember asking them that and they were like, and I explained what it was and everything. And Greg was like, and perfectly 
understandable. Like, I, if I were Greg, I'd do the same thing because he's thinking about his own thing. He goes, well, why would you want to do that? We have our own draft guide you could contribute to. You know, because his lane was, yeah, exactly. his, that was perfectly with his lane. And he thought I was in that lane. But no, I was like, I was one of those crazy thousand people like out there who was like, no, I want to start my own draft guide. I don't want to, you know, I'm doing yeah. this. I'm committed to this. And he just was like, he couldn't believe it. And I remember the second time I turned it down too. I like, I approached them second, the next year. It was like, you know, I want to re-explore this. And then they were like, yeah, we would hire you. You could write for Fox Sports. You could have this column doing this. And I just thought, it's not going to be a good fit ultimately. And it was a really tough decision. And then like that following summer, I remember just like, had some different life changes. My ex and I had broken up and like, uh, you know, I was in my house alone and I gave them most of the furniture. Cause I was like, they don't need it. I can get this. They need it. I don't, you know, let's get all that set up. So I'm in this empty house at like 35, starting to about to transition to a new job, taking like a 50%, actually a 60% pay cut and still like trying to get into doing this. And I remember watching football on Sunday night, and there's Greg Rosenthal on NBC on prime time talking, and they're advertising Roto World. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, this is either going to really work out great or you're a complete idiot. You're you know, you're going to regret this forever. And I use that as kind of honestly, I've kind of used that in the past to go, well, you remember that you remember that night in your bedroom just sitting there without without a bed and like at 35 years old and like watching Roto World and seeing Greg Rosenthal there and, and you're like do you want to, is that where you want to still be and I thought no I got I I can put another 3 or 4 hours of watching this guy today. <laughs> yeah, you right? right. Motivate you to get there. You you do, and so you got to use those things as as motivation. Sometimes you got to look at it and go, all right, there's going to be tough decisions, and you have to and you have to be true to what that is. Like I understand as a person, like what is it that I really want to be, and and don't compromise that because if you find out that you didn't want to be a talking head at a big network doing the song the 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 little pony show that they have to do. And I'm not denigrating them. I, no, I, I know it sounds like thing they enjoy. It, it is. They enjoy that. They're, and there's and there's importance to that because most people don't have the illness like you and I, and yeah. they just want to hear the 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 thirty second version of this. You, yeah. you know, and, and but you know, for folks who don't want to do that, that's not their thing. Then you don't want to be there because you're going to be miserable. Yep, a hundred percent agree. Yeah. <laughs> so. This was a fun. This was a fun chat. Um, as always, yeah. we've obviously run over. Um, but next time we'll talk a little bit more about players. You know, we'll talk about some college players that we've been watching. Um, but hopefully, you enjoyed this. You can obviously find Russ Landy at Russ Landy on Twitter. Um, you can find me at Matt Waldman there. And of course, rate and review this podcast. And if you have the opportunity, let us know what you think. It's always nice to get um, positive feedback. Um, I know that I, I'll tell Russ on air. I've had a few people who've really enjoyed this podcast talking about coaching and leadership and all of these different dynamics. Some of them are medical professionals who are who are um, you know working in a variety of different fields. Um, and have talked about their own leadership experiences with people as a result of this that have been a lot of fun to kind of to find out about. So you, you know, I know you know I'm talking about you if you're listening right now, um, you know, one of you uh, out there that I've enjoyed, you know, trading letters with um, or, or emails with. But again, you know, rate and review the podcast. You can find us at a variety of outlets, and we hope you guys have a wonderful holiday season.